Welcome to Medicine the Truth, one of the four weekly podcasts in our Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I'm Jeremy Core, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a broad range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, listeners are enjoying this blend of the latest in medicine combined with ongoing updates on COVID-19. What's a couple current news stories in the infectious disease category? Jeremy, as listeners remember from last year, once the holidays arrive, the prevalence of viral infection rises. And in this post-Thanksgiving time, That is what we are seeing with cases going up rapidly. Unlike in the past two years, few Americans wore masks. So policy experts worry that the COVID-19, RSV, and flu seasons could be very problematic this year, particularly given that vaccination rates for all three are down compared to policy expert hopes. As we discussed in a previous Medicine the Truth episode, the only positive development is that the three viruses don't seem to be following identical infection trajectories this year. As we had predicted, RSV, it's out of the gate. It's come first with cases already having soared. And luckily so far, COVID-19 has risen only 9% and flu 4%. Come the end of December and early January, we could expect the latter two to take off with RSV beginning to taper. So far, according to the CDC, Less than 20% of adults in the U.S. have been vaccinated with the new updated COVID-19 vaccine itself. The areas with the highest rates, the Vermont at 35%, Washington, D.C., a little over 30% in Minnesota, slightly under 30%. At the other end, Mississippi's at 6%, Louisiana and Florida are under 10%. For those listeners who like to keep score, the newest COVID-19 variant is BA.2.86. And it's tripled in prevalence over the past few weeks, but it's a descendant of the Omicron strain, which was used to design the new vaccine. So we can expect that the vaccine that's now being administrated will be very effective against it. What's a second COVID-19 story? The problem of getting people vaccinated isn't limited to these three viruses. Last year, according to the World Health Organization and the CDC, measles cases and deaths soared worldwide. But in this case, the reason wasn't patient-to-parent hesitancy, but residual difficulties in distribution and administration left over from the pandemic. As hard as to be believed, around the world, measles cases surged by 18% to 9 million, with deaths increasing by 43% to 136,000 people, mainly children. As we talked about during the pandemic, the goal of vaccination is to achieve herd immunity, which the virus can't find any people it can infect, and therefore slowly disappears from circulation. The percentage of the population which would need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity varies by the infectiousness of the specific virus. And measles, 
That's one of the most communicable diseases. As such, researchers believe that to achieve herd immunity would require 95% of people to be vaccinated. And in many poorer nations, particularly those in Africa, the current vaccination rates are around 66%, a massive gap in required immunity. Finally, in a very depressing story, the U.S. suicide rate continues to rise. It's now at 14.3 people taking their lives each year for 100,000 Americans. And that is the highest level we've seen since 1941. It's the equivalent of 50,000 deaths annually, or translates into 50,000 deaths annually, and it's even higher now than the number of people dying in traffic accidents. Unfortunately, Jeremy, there's little progress on the horizon in terms of either one, addressing the underlying factors driving individuals to end their life, or two, mental health resources to help prevent it, or even three, legislation likely to reduce the ease of access to firearms for individuals at high risk. Robbie, what's the second COVID-19 story? Jeremy, you may remember that early in the COVID-19 pandemic, there were a massive number of deaths among nursing home residents. The frail health and close living quarters of residents make these facilities near the top of the list for locations where people are likely to contract the virus, require hospitalization, and go on to die. And yet this year, only 17% of nursing home residents and 2% of the staff are up to date on COVID vaccination. This reflects the lack of coordination in the nursing home industry and the end of the mandate for health care workers to be vaccinated has made it far worse. The current situation exposes current long-term care residents to extremely high risks with hundreds of thousands of nursing home residents having already died during the pandemic. The state with the lowest vaccination rate among nursing home residents Arizona at 6.2%, with North Dakota the highest at 43%. Speaking about the upcoming viral seasons, how are Americans feeling about the risks? The Annenberg Policy Center surveyed 1,600 adults about each of the three viral infections expected to infect Americans this year. Surprisingly, the response specific to each of these three threats were similar. For both RSV and COVID, 35% of people worry that they or someone in their family would become infected in the next three months. While for the flu, 39% were worried they or someone in their family would become infected. The answers to two other questions on the survey proved very interesting. First, relative to long COVID, nearly one in three respondents reported personally knowing someone who believes that they're suffering long-term complications from having been infected. And second, in response to another question, 21% of people said that they had received a flu shot this year. And that's less than the 26% who said they had in 2022, and even lower than the 38% who had received the flu shot in 2021. If this downward trend persists, the problems with viral infections will become worse, not better in the future, despite our having effective ways to diminish the severity of the infections and the likelihood of hospitalization and death. What's new from the perspective of the healthcare system? Jeremy, the newest data 
is on life expectancy in 2022, the year following the end of the COVID pandemic. As you would expect, there's been a rebound from the height of the crisis, but it's been far less than you might have predicted. What we see is that all deaths from COVID were dramatically lower last year. The incidence of heart disease, drug overdoses, and homicides, they've all risen. Life expectancy had been 78.8 years in 2019. It then fell to 76.4 in 2021, and this year it rose by one year to 77.5. But of course, that means it remains a full year less than prior to the pandemic, and it's a mere half year higher than two decades in the past when it stood at 77.1 years. As such, life expectancy in the U.S. is now five years behind other wealthy nations. These other peer nations saw a more rapid and complete improvement in mortality rates once the COVID virus regressed. As an example, Sweden matched its previous life expectancy prior to COVID of 83.1 years, and that's nearly six years higher than for Americans. In fact, life expectancy in all of the peer nations bounced back faster than the U.S., with Finland, the second slowest to rebound after the U.S., remaining down only 0.6 years, and that's half, less than half, of the 1.3-year decline in the United States. In our last Diving Deep podcast, we discussed how the epidemic of chronic disease, which includes diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and asthma, has driven Dr. Burnout skyward. The longevity data reflect the negative impact of the same chronic diseases on the current health and mortality of Americans. And it's similar to what our nation experienced during the pandemic when the U.S. mortality was much higher than most other countries. All of these pieces tie together and they produce high mortality. Whether the public health failure we're looking at results from vaccine hesitancy, viral infection, opioids, gun violence, or chronic disease prevalence, they're all tied together in the failures of our current healthcare system. What is some healthcare business news? Jeremy, from a business perspective, Major changes continue to happen in the industry, and they reflect the struggles to rein in healthcare costs that our nation is currently experiencing. The first story is a proposed merger between two of the country's largest insurers, Cigna and Humana. The new company, assuming that they merge, would have a combined market cap of $150 billion, and that would allow them to rival in size insurance competitors like United Healthcare and retail giants like CVS. Would also allow the combined PBMs from Cigna and Humana to control one third of the total pharmacy market. And that would be equivalent to CVS's PBM called Caremark. The logic of the deal is that these two companies focus on different halves of the healthcare system with Humana currently invested in Medicare Advantage and Medicaid and Cigna predominantly providing coverage to commercial businesses for workers under the age of 65. As such, there could be major economies of scale and the ability to service a broader network of individuals. At the same time, the deal will meet regulatory scrutiny 
as it will provide insurers with increased market control over the hospitals and doctors who provide services to people of all ages. In a second story, CVS has decided to make its drug pricing more transparent and simpler. Today, PBMs hide the cost of medications and they hide the profits generated through their negotiations. When it comes to pharmaceuticals, there's little relationship between the retail price of a drug and what a patient is likely to pay. And as a result, consumers often end up spending more for a drug covered by their insurance than just buying the medication themselves. CVS announced that it will now charge based on a simple formula. It will take its cost to purchase the medication and add a small fee to cover the expense of dispensing and tack on a small profit at the end. This cost plus methodology is how the generic company founded by Mark Cuban sells its drugs. Today, pharmacy benefits managers, these are the PBMs, are under intense scrutiny and they're receiving criticism from elected officials. And this model, if implemented, would help assuage the critics. Price transparency would be a big step forward. As we discussed in our Diving Deep episode, the conglomerate of monopolies consistently uses opacity to drive up profits, often at the expense of patients. The PBMs are a clear example of this strategy and tactic. What else is happening in healthcare overall, Robbie? Jeremy, the evolution of drugs for weight loss continues to march forward. Eli Lilly's drug, Manjaro, prescribed currently for type 2 diabetes management, has now been approved by the FDA to treat obesity. It will be sold under a different name, Zepbound. The introduction of this drug doesn't guarantee that insurers will pay for it or that the government will cover the Medicare and Medicaid, but it does mean that clinicians can legally now prescribe it for this specific indication. And research indicates that Manjaro is likely to be about 5% more effective when it comes to weight loss than Wagovi, the leading competitor on the market now, manufactured by Novo Nordisk. With 70% of Americans overweight or obese, the availability of a second option will improve the current drug availability and overcome the shortages that our nation is currently experiencing. But it won't drive down prices to a level that would make either medication affordable for payers or patients. The expected price for this drug is likely to be over $1,000 a month or total more than $11,000 per year. Currently, about 5 million people take one of these GLP-1 agonist medications. Already, Eli Lilly receives around $3 billion a year in revenue for these drugs, and the projected sales have driven up the company's market capitalization to $600 billion. The exorbitant prices for these weight loss medications make them gold mines for the pharmaceutical industry. Rabbi, along those lines, I've heard that there's research which shows that these drugs have a positive impact on heart health. Is that true? The answer, Jeremy, is yes. Although scientists don't yet know if the benefit results mainly from the weight loss these drugs produce or from something else about their biology. In a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine, researchers concluded that Wagovi can cut the risk of serious problems, we're talking heart attacks and strokes, by 20%. 
The study included 17,500 people from 41 countries around the world. It enrolled individuals with a history of heart problems, but ones who did not also have diabetes. In the study, the patients on the medication lost 9% of their weight, while those who received the placebo, they lost only 1%. In the latter group, 8% of people had a heart attack, while in the former group, only 6.5% had a heart attack. The 1.5% difference is the reported 20% reduction in the study document. About a third of the participants in the study experienced serious side effects, with 17% of the individuals getting the Wagovi quitting the study compared to 8% in the control group. Maybe all of the reduction in cardiovascular risk reflected the 8% greater weight loss, leading to diminished blood lipids and more stable blood glucose readings. But possibly there's a direct effect of the medication itself on the heart or the blood vessels. Either way, publication of the study is likely to expand the number of people eligible for the GLP-1 class of drugs, whether they're insured through a governmental program like Medicare or enrolled in private insurance. Robbie, where does all this leave doctors? Jeremy, as you're implying, physicians are currently caught in a bind. First, there are many who believe that regardless of the annual $12,000 to $15,000 price tag, that people who want to lose weight should be entitled to get a GLP-1 drug, even when they don't have a diagnosed medical problem. To these physicians, prescribing this type of drug is a form of prevention, and they're frustrated by payers who refuse to cover it. Then there's the growing number of physicians who are getting inundated by patients who want a prescription for the drugs, including some who don't meet the insurer's criteria for coverage, but who insist that the doctor write the prescription as though the patient had diabetes and obesity. Then there are clinicians who recognize these medications can help people lose weight, but they're concerned that the cost for these drugs will swamp the nation economically and divert dollars from other, even more valuable programs. And there are others who worry about the side effects from these medications, and they're concerned there will be currently unrecognized long-term problems. Finally, there are the payers, including self-funded businesses and insurers, and they're pressing the physicians, threatening action if these doctors in any way deviate from the rigid guidelines the insurers have imposed on prescribing. And for primary care doctors who are already overwhelmed and burned out by the total amount of time they must spend in practice, all of this feels like the straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back. There are so many factors at play when it comes to these medications, from the profit of the drug companies, to the desire of people to look better, to the data on weight regain after the medications are stopped, to the growing epidemic of chronic disease. There would be ways to sort out these pieces through unbiased research, appropriate drug pricing, and rational policies around medication coverage. But in the U.S., none of that exists. Robbie, you've written about the empowered patient relative to technology. Is there any evidence we're moving in that direction? Jeremy, we're taking baby steps. But as an example, patients are slowly being trusted to participate in the provision of their own medical care that previously had required a licensed professional. A recent example is home testing. The FDA just approved two tests that patients can now administer for themselves at home to diagnose chlamydia or gonorrhea. These diseases are the two most commonly transmitted STDs 
Soon people will be able to buy a test kit for one or the other and submit a specimen to the laboratory without having to go to the laboratory directly or have the specimen collected in a doctor's office. The test will be available over the counter. Currently, the only laboratory test which can be purchased over the counter by patients for home testing with laboratory reading is for HIV. Although, of course, they can test for COVID-19 and pregnancy without laboratory involvement. The hope, of course, is that by taking away the inconvenience of going to a lab and the stigma of having to ask to be tested, that more people will detect STDs before they've spread them to others. And of course, home testing will be a major advance for patients living in rural areas or far from a testing center. As we mentioned in a recent Medicine the Truth episode, the incidence of new infections for STDs has been soaring. In 2021, there were over 1.6 million new cases of chlamydia, which is the most frequent STD in the country, and over 710,000 cases of gonorrhea, a major health problem that when left undiagnosed and untreated can produce tubal scarring, preventing future pregnancy, and can lead to systemic infection, resulting in painful joint infections. So far over the counter medications and tests, they're not covered by insurance. It will be interesting to see how insurers and government payers will handle funding when the collection of a specimen is at home, but the processing is performed in a laboratory. Rory, what's a big breaking story? Jeremy, sickle cell disease is a terrible affliction that can't be effectively treated today. And that may change in the near future. Regulators in Great Britain have now approved the first treatment using the gene editing process called CRISPR. And they also approved its use for another red blood cell problem called beta thalassemia. Listeners may remember that when we talked about the seemingly impossible to imagine technique capable of altering tiny segments of a person's DNA that it could theoretically reverse inherited disease. And now it is becoming a reality. It's expected that later this month, the FDA will also grant approval for the use of this technique for patients with sickle cell disease in the US. About 100,000 Americans, mostly black and Hispanic patients have sickle cell disease, resulting in episodes of severe pain and blood vessel occlusion impacting organs like the lung and the kidneys. The problem in patients with sickle disease is that the genes responsible for the structure of hemoglobin, which is the protein that binds oxygen and allows it to be carried throughout the body, it's, they're abnormal and they result in malformed red blood cells. By altering the DNA through CRISPR, the patient's body will then be able to create normal hemoglobin. This has been the holy grail of genetic manipulation. And now it's right around the corner. Because the risks of manipulating human DNA are so great, the restrictions placed on the use of CRISPR under the British approval are strict and require the person to be age 12 or older, to have experienced repeated episodes of extreme pain, and not to have any more standard options available to them. This would apply to patients who theoretically could be cured with a bone marrow transplant, but who don't have compatible donors which most often is the case in the US today. Like bone marrow transplant, the process is complex and fraught with danger. And it's associated with major life-threatening complications. First, the individual undergoes intense chemotherapy to clear the bone marrow of all abnormal stem cells 
which could otherwise continue to produce these deformed red cells. Then the genes must be altered with the patient staying in the hospital for at least a month due to the high risk of infection and other complications from the high dose chemotherapy which have been administered. Only when a normal bone marrow has been created is it safe to leave isolation. And finally, the cost will be extremely high, most likely in the two to three million dollar range per patient. Of course, there will be some cost savings since sickle cell disease results in an estimated $3 billion of medical expense annually in the US. And that's from hospitalization and treatment of the complications of the sickle cell crises. But the biggest reason to move ahead is the end the suffering of those afflicted by the genetic disorder will have and the elimination of the intense pain and organ failures that they experience throughout their lives. Robbie, you know, as a father, I'm interested in medical news relative to children. What's new? Jeremy, as we discussed earlier, there's a growing problem with STDs. And the victims, they're not always the adults who contract them. Over the past decade, new data show that the most problematic of the STDs, this is syphilis, is not only rising across the population, but the number of babies born with congenital syphilis has soared. When fetuses in the womb contract syphilis from their mothers, many die. And those babies who live experience life-altering birth defects, blindness, deafness, intellectual delay. Over the past decade, from 2012 to 2022, the number of cases in the United States, it's risen by a factor of 10 times. And depressingly, according to the CDC, of the 3,761 babies affected in 2022, nearly all of them would have had the complications prevented had the mother been tested and treated prior to their birth. This growing problem reflects a combination of factors, including the increased incidence of syphilis, along with the other STDs across the nation. But it also reflects the difficulty that people have getting the prenatal care they require and the lack of routine screening for syphilis. To address the problem, the CDC will be recommending that obstetricians screen pregnant women for syphilis using a rapid in-office test rather than the usual laboratory one. This approach will allow treatment, which is a single shot of a long-lasting penicillin, to be given immediately before the woman leaves the office anytime the test is positive, rather than as standard today, sending the mother home and asking her to return for treatment, something that proves difficult to accomplish and frequently fails to happen. An administration of the antibiotic early in the pregnancy it results in a 98% cure rate. One challenge is that among the babies born with congenital syphilis, 40% of the mothers received no prenatal care prior to delivery. The good news is that unlike many other congenital problems, if you can treat the mother even just 30 days before delivery, most of the babies will avoid the serious complications that syphilis produces. But with two and five moms never go to the doctor's office, the solution may require doing testing in some other place beside the doctor's office. And that could include jails, needle, needle exchange sites, and community health centers. Rabbi, we've talked in the past about how the number of medical students applying for primary care residencies has declined. What's new relative to the fellowship choices trainees are selecting? Jeremy, the latest results are quite problematic. At the end of residency in primary care, a large number of residents apply for fellowships. 
This makes them eligible to practice cardiology, gastroenterology, pulmonology, and gerontology. And gerontology is the caring for the aged adults, a growing need in the United States. And the most recent match, each of these first three areas of specialization, they filled all of their open slots. And in contrast, only 44% of internal medicine related geriatric positions were filled and a dismal 27% of family medicine geriatric slots were filled. The reasons are multifactorial, but income is likely the leading cause. All of the other subspecialties besides geriatric medicine earn at least twice as much as primary care, whereas gerontology is paid at the same relatively low rate. This is an example of where the fee-for-service system conflicts with what patients need and what would be best for the health of the nation. You can choose either to invest in preventing complications of chronic diseases like heart attacks, or you can spend even more money treating them. Fee-for-service does the latter, and the high costs with poor clinical outcomes our nation experiences today are the result. Robbie, with the election cycle coming up, what's on the minds of voters when it comes to health care? Jeremy, I recently read a fascinating study from the Kaiser Family Foundation tracking poll. As you'd imagine, there were major differences between Democrats and Republican voters on the hot button issues, abortion, gun violence, and the Affordable Care Act. But for voters from both parties, their number one issue was the affordability of health care. With 90% of Democrats and 71% of Republicans saying that this is a very important issue. And close behind for both parties was Medicare and Medicaid, access to mental health, and drug costs. Although in each of the three areas, a higher percentage of Democratic voters said that these issues were very important, the gap between the parties was relatively small. And it's clear to me that on social issues, the views of the two parties are vastly different. When it comes to affordability, mental health, drug prices, the alignment is far greater than social media would indicate. Robbie, any final thoughts? Jeremy, although it may seem like a non-healthcare topic, as a student and teacher of leadership, I find the bizarre saga of Sam Altman and OpenAI, which transpired two weeks ago, highly educational. As you may remember, across five days, the CEO and visionary leader of the most advanced generative AI company in the world was fired by his board at OpenAI, replaced by two different candidates. He accepted a job leading Microsoft's research efforts. He recruited an A-plus team of technology experts, and then he was rehired back into his old CEO role with a new board plus one former member. The news of his dismissal led to speculation of financial malfeasance or inappropriate contact, but so far, nothing has surfaced. And it's hard for you to imagine that something will be found given that he's been reappointed to the position. I think the story can be read as a parable about healthcare and the need for change. At first glance, the issues seem to be a battle of fiduciary mandate. The government instruction of OpenAI was unique. A not-for-profit board whose mission was to protect humanity found itself overseeing a business with an estimated valuation of over $80 billion. I believe that the board members thought they were trying to save humanity, 
by terminating Altman. To them, he's pushing ahead too rapidly and risking the types of existential threat which would bring an end to human life as we know it. But I also believe that Altman was trying to save humanity. He could see that the path our country was on relative to medical care delivery, to climate change, social determinants of health, had it posed its own set of existential threats. He recognized that once future generations of ChatGPT are 30 to 100 times more powerful, and that's only a matter of five to 10 years, that the technology will be able to support solutions which would save humanity. And without them, the lives of people in various parts of the world would be unsustainable, whether from excessive heat in Africa to the health and well-being of people in the wealthiest nations of the, around the globe. And given that people in healthcare today don't seem willing to shift course, technology would be the only alternative solution. Of course, all this is speculation. I can't be sure how much healthcare motivates him to push forward as quickly as possible. But the threats of inaction, they're clear. Altman has acknowledged the existential threat generative AI poses, but he's also talked about its incredible potential. Like a Shakespearean play, OpenAI's battle for control highlights the intensity of emotion that this technology generates and the dangers ahead, whether people fear or embrace it. One thing's for sure, Jeremy, which transpired so far, it's merely act one of what I predict will be a four or five act drama before it reaches resolution. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com, and in all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great day.